0: All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 15. Last week, we talked about the need for repentance. Talked about how we wanted to go through the narrow door. How we are invited to the banquet, though some have excuses. God encourages us to go to the hedges and highways and implore, plead with people to come in. And that brings us to Luke chapter 15. Many of you guys have heard this story before. The prodigal son is probably the most famous teaching um, of Jesus. And so uh, today what I want us to see with fresh eyes are a few things. One thing that you will see in this story is the graciousness of God. God's grace should blow you away when you see this story. You also see the importance of repentance. You see the emptiness of sin. And then you see a challenge to those who have been found to then go and find others. And so this is a loaded chapter. We could spend a few Sundays on this passage. We're going to dive through all three of these stories. And my prayer is that God moves in such a way that those who are lost come home. And those who are found, go finding. All right, so let's pray, then we'll get to work. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace. And so, Father, I pray with everything that is going on, I pray that we see with fresh eyes who you are and what you've called us to do. I pray that you transform us through the power of your Spirit. I pray that we move throughout this city, searching for people who are lost and need to be found. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, if, uh, if I remember correctly, it was November 2012. Uh, we went on a trip to Benin, Africa. Benin is a small country in Africa. I had to look it up on a map. Um, it, it takes about a day to fly in with the layovers and different landing spots. Uh, it takes us a long time to get there. And, and as a matter of fact, I went with uh, Rick Watson leading the team. Uh, we were building church buildings, training up pastors And sharing the gospel in villages, going uh, down dirt roads in the bush country of Benin, Africa. Uh, It was exciting and challenging uh, to spend two weeks out there. And so uh, we stayed in mosquito tents outside. You'd sweat at night, which was fantastic. if You needed to lose weight, uh, but it was not very comfortable to sleep. And then we had a guy, a couple guys on our team that snored louder than I've ever heard anybody snore before in my life. And you're outside. Right? The animals were howling because of the noise they were making. So you didn't sleep too much. And so, but that wasn't the roughest part, right? 90 degree weather, sticky at night, in a mosquito tent. Um, it wasn't walking in the bush country uh, where the day before a guy, uh, there was this poisonous snake called a viper. Um, and he had killed it and said, hey, watch out because these things are around. Uh, that terrifies you when you're sleeping outside, knowing if you roll over the wrong way, it might get you. Um, it wasn't the, uh, the fact that we were carrying these logs on our shoulders um, through the bush country, sweating, dehydrated. It, it wasn't the medicine we were taking or the, the sun bearing down on us. The hardest part was the lack of communication back home to my wife and three girls. So going two weeks without communication, except for when you made it back to a city that had some connection, that was the toughest part. And then on the way back... Um, man, I was excited to get home, right? I, I was excited to get home. Um, the the eight-hour flight over the, the pond, um, sitting in the middle, of the, I, I felt bad for myself, and I also felt bad for the guy sitting to my right and left. All right? Middle seats on the airplane, not very comfortable, especially if you're a big guy sitting next to a big guy sitting next to a big guy, right? And so I'm thinking, ah, eight hours, seven hours and 59 minutes, <laughs> checking it out. But not the worst part. And then I get home, we land. And I see my girls with their signs. And man, I'm going to them. They're coming to me. Big hugs. You see how young Ava is. Um, But this is the look of celebration. Right? I get home. I pick them all up. I'm giving them a hug. This was a homecoming. And I've only been gone two weeks. Now, I say that to say this. When you see the account in Luke chapter 15, it's a homecoming. And it's true of all of those who repent and run to God. It's a time of celebration. And there's a lot of people that we know, that we're praying for, that we're pursuing, that we want to see come home to the Father. And so that's what I want. I want us to see the picture of how God welcomes home lost sons and lost daughters. And I want us to join in that celebration. Alright, so, so that's the main point. There's a lot of other subpoints. That's the main point. Alright, the thread of these three stories, you're going to hear about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. So there's something that's lost that has to be pursued, that has to be found. And you're going to see in all three accounts the thing that was searched for is found. And then you'll also see with all three stories there is celebration. There is celebration. Joy is compounding upon joy. Shows us how a sinner should approach God. Humbly. I've got nothing to offer you, God. I don't deserve to be in your presence, but I'm here. I'm turning from this and this and this, and I'm coming straight to you. That's how we should approach God. Right? We don't have anything to offer Him. We come humbly before Him. And then the cool part is how God responds. Open arms. Unconditional love. Come on. Come on home. So, First off, let's understand the crowd. Look at Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. Now, the task collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him. That's one group. Task collectors and sinners. These are bad dudes. These are the outcasts in the community. Nobody wants anything to do with these guys. Right? And they're drawing near to hear Jesus. And then look at the other group. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. So so you got two groups of people, tax collectors and sinners, drawing near to Jesus. And then you have the scribes and the Pharisees backing away, grumbling about who's coming near. This is very important for us to understand. Why did those far from God feel comfortable approaching God? I believe it's the view that Jesus gives them of welcoming them home. His whole purpose is to say, hey, here is your path to God through me come home come home and then the pharisees and the scribes they remind me now listen i gotta be careful here because i don't want you to think i watched the bachelor but in our household the bachelor is on every once in a while once a week and the scribes and the pharisees the scribes and the pharisees remind me of that show the bachelor right so you have all of these ladies coming to date this one dude right and they're meeting them, but then all of a sudden, you'll hear throughout the show, they start grumbling against each other. Can you believe that's what she's wearing? She's not here for the right reasons. Um, or or got, I can't believe she got picked for the one-on-one date. So-and-so hasn't been on, and they start grumbling, like, why, what's going on here? That's what the scribes and the Pharisees are doing. They're mad about who God is allowing to come near Him. And unfortunately, a lot of our churches look like the bachelor instead of Jesus. And so what I want us to be as a church is a church that celebrates people coming to God from all walks of life. And the further you are off, this text shows us the greatest chance you have of being welcoming in. And so I want us to see these audiences. And then also notice that there's two sons we're going to meet. One is diving into sin, running away from God. He stops he as he wakes up and he returns to the Father. And I think that represents some of us in the room. Right? It represents a lot of people in our community. They're running from God. They're doing what they want to do, running far, far, far away. And Jesus says, come home. And that's like the tax collectors and sinners that are drawing near to Jesus. They're coming home. And, and then there's the older brother. And some of us in the room have older brother tendencies. And a lot of times where you'll find the older brother is the person that's been in church his whole life. Right? It's the church leader, the deacon that's mad at everything. Right? Nothing's going right. They don't like the songs. They don't like the style. They don't like the carpet. Right? They're, that's older brother tendency. And then what happens is someone comes in and they get dirt on the rug, even though they're coming home, changing their eternities. They're meeting God for the first time. They're not overjoyed with that. They're mad because there's dirt on the floor. May we never be a church made up of older brothers. So we've got to guard against that. And so that's why we need to notice the audience. We need to understand the crowd. But then I want us to see overwhelming Joy. Look at verse 4. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that he's lost until he finds it? Now listen, I know everybody in the room probably has never owned sheep. He's talking to a crowd that knows about shepherding. and says, hey, if you lose one, you're going to go find it. Right? If you have four kids and you lose one, you're going to leave the three to go find the one that's lost. Right? That's what he's, he's saying. He'd go after the one until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. You see the care of the shepherd. picking up, I'm going to bring you back. And then you see the emotion, rejoicing. Verse 6, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying with them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, now this is the amazing part, right? Jesus isn't saying, hey, this is how we take care of sheep. He's saying, hey, here's a heavenly, spiritual reality. When lost people are found, joy should abound. Verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Heaven rejoices when the lost come home. That's a powerful, powerful statement. Oh, it gets better. Check out the next thing that's lost. Or what woman having a silver coins, 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Do, do you notice they don't stop searching until they find it? The shepherd doesn't stop until he finds the sheep. The woman doesn't stop until she finds the coin. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Angels that are before the God of the universe, who is joy to the infinity, rejoices over this. This shows that the bigness and greatness of God is also very personal. And when you fill in your name, repents, And comes to Christ, there's rejoicing and joy in heaven. Overwhelming joy. And then there's one more story. I think it's interesting. Um, You'll know the contrast, right? So those two stories are the same. Lost sheep, go find, find, rejoice. Lost coin, go find, find, rejoice. And then you get to this third story. And so in that backdrop, notice the differences. All right. So here we go. We'll we'll start off the bat with with this. The younger son. And he said, verse 11, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me my share of property that I'm coming. That's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, real quick, uh, what does that mean? What he's saying is a father, you're better off to me dead than alive. I I want half of the estate now which I would normally get after you die, but that's no good to me. I need it now. And then you see the father instead of saying, what are you talking about? You're getting nothing. He divides it. Well, verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens, of that country, you sent him to the fields to feed his pigs. Now, listen, for, for you and me, pigs aren't a big deal. For a Jewish man, that is awful. Pigs are unclean animals. You don't mess with them. You don't eat them. You, you don't met. That's a terrible job. This man is desperate, is what Luke is trying to tell us. But it gets even worse. Verse 16, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. He's saying, the pigs have a better diet than I do, and I can't even get some of those scraps. Do you see the desperation in the younger son? I think it's important here you see that sin always follows the same path. Promises joy leads to desperation, despair, and death. You see it here. It was fun while he had money, but it left him empty and broken. And we see this all throughout the Bible. You see this with Adam and Eve, right? They they see this fruit. It looks good for food. I want to be wise. God's withholding something from me. And, And when they take it and they bite into it, I bet you it was juicy. I bet you it tasted good. But what happens? Broken relationship with God. They start hiding from God instead of enjoying His presence. They're kicked out of the garden. Death enters the picture. Family is ruined. Why? Because sin always follows the same path. Promises the world... And takes everything. Or, you know the story of Jonah. Jonah's called, hey, I need you to go to Nineveh. Jonah's like, I don't like Nineveh. I'm running. He thinks he can run away from the presence of God. And so just Jonah goes down to Joppa where he jumps on a boat going the opposite direction. And, And then he keeps going. He goes down into the boat and falls asleep. But God sends a windstorm and is rocking the boat. And the captain of the boat says, hey, man, I need you to wake up. Call on your God. We've been praying to our gods, and they're not listening to us. Pray on your God. Maybe he'll help us. And Jonah says, hey, man, it is my fault. It is my fault. The God who created the heavens and the seas, I'm running from. And the captain's like, what were you thinking? We happen to be in an ocean, and you're running from them. Of course it's your fault. And so Jonah's like, hey, just throw me overboard. And the crew's like, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to keep on trying. And they're, they're letting go of everything, right? They're throwing everything overboard, all their goods, all their merchandise. They're trying to keep it se- uh, from sinking. Uh, they're working hard to get back short, and they can't. And finally, they say, Jonah, it's over. And so they throw him overboard. Jonah goes down to the sea. But he's not finished yet. God sends a great fish, swallows him up. and three days, he's down in the belly of a fish. Because we always think running from God is the answer, but it always leads the same path. Down, down, down. That's a desperate spot. Wishing you had the diet that the pigs had, getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden, in the belly of a fish, or you know David. David's won all these battles. He's a great king, great military leader. But he's on a balcony, and he looks and sees a beautiful woman and says, you know what? I'm going for it. Running away from the presence of God, thinking the joy of sin is more than the joy of God, and it leaves him empty. It ruins his family, ruins his legacy. Everybody reads that account in the Bible. And here is a man after God's own heart, and yet sin comes in and destroys his family. Because sin always follows the same path. Now, that's very, very important because all of us in the room are fighting the same battle. Your heart will go after anything and everything if it's not attached to God. God promises joy and will fulfill you to the full. But when you detach from God, your heart goes after everything trying to fill it up. And now here's the problem. Your soul can only be filled by God. And so when you go after other things, they never ever satisfy and so some of us are trying to fill a vacuum, the only God can, with drugs, or with money, or with a relationship. I remember being a, a student pastor. Uh, there's a lot of times where students will get a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and all of a sudden their whole world is oriented around that person. But then they break up, and, and they use language that's worshiping. I can't live without him. I, it's not right now without her in my life. Those are words of worship because their heart was detached from God and attached to a person that will never ever be able to fill the place of God. Think about some other things that we worship. Now, this is a little bit simple, but I want us to to see this. There is worshiping going on coming up here Labor Day weekend with football games. It's a $14 billion industry. That's a lot of money. There's a lot of people sacrificing financially and with their time to worship a game. And so it's, it's crazy to look at, at some of these fans and their week is ruined by a win or loss. And I want you to understand what we're cheering for. What we're, and now listen, don't get me wrong. I am a passionate Bengals fan, and it is grueling and painful. But this is the year. We're getting a playoff victory. When's the last playoff victory for the Bengals? Gosh, half of these guys aren't even alive by that time. This is the year. Anyways, I want you to think about it. You've got grown men. Grown men going one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten yards a time. And if they can do it in three or four tries, they get a first down, and then they get to guess what? Go another one ten yards, right? And the fans go nuts if they get enough of those ten yards and get into this thing called an end zone. It erupts, unless the wrong team does it, and there's a lot of booze. It's crazy when you look at the passion and the joy that comes from a game of grown men moving a ball that doesn't even look like a ball up and down a field, a little bit here, a little bit here for four quarters. And yet we see our hearts will attach to something and worship something if it's not attached to God. So what I want to remind myself of as, as a coach, and, and man, I love football, I want to be careful because at the end of the day, this is just a game. And I'll root for the Bengals, but if they lose, it's not going to make me be mean to my wife or kick the dog that I don't have. Right? Because I'm not worshipping football. I'm worshipping God. And, and so, and, and I want you to hear me right, I'm not saying be less passionate about the Bengals, I'm saying be more passionate about God. This place should be a place of celebration. Remember how we talked about how joy broke out? Lost sheep, joy. Lost coin, joy. Well when this son comes home there's going to be a party, joy. I want to see if we celebrate that way. So. I'm jumping ahead. Let's get to the the next part. The emptiness of sin, so so stop running. And maybe you're here, I love Moses' example. Um, If you're taking notes, write down Hebrews 11, 24 and 25. If you're taking notes, Hebrews 11, 24 and 25, and this is what it says. talking about Moses going through the, the faith giants in the Old Testament. He says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now listen, that is a prestigious position. Everything he wanted for the rest of his life he could have if he stayed there. But he said, I'm not going to do that. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And that's always true. Sin will give you a momentary happiness, but will never, ever, ever last. It'll leave you empty and broken. And you might say, well, you know what, Ben, I've worked for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. I've got a great savings account, I'm happy, I'm doing what I want, I don't need God. Guess what, you don't get to take any of that with you when you die. And you talk about emptiness. When you stand before Jesus and he says, depart from me, I never knew you, that's what sin earns us. You see, we're all separated from God. None of us make it in. That's empty. You might have everything this world has to offer for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years. And that's nothing compared to eternity. So when I stand before Jesus, I want to say, hey, come home, come in. Glad you're here. As a son or a daughter, I don't want, depart from that. I, I, I don't know you. That's empty. Right? That's what sin leads us to. And, and then number four, the invitation to repent and to return to the Father. Invitation to repent and return to the Father. Now, we talked a little bit about this last week. And we talked about how we should repent. The, the son does a good job. He woke up. Look at verse 17. But when, the, but when he came to himself, he's like, man, I'm, I'm daydreaming about what the pigs eat. Ah, duh. I can go back home. And this is why. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I love that. That's confession. God, I was wrong. Forgive me. That's what repentance looks like. You wake up, you stop your sin, and you return to him saying, Father, forgive me. Verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. I love this. This is a beautiful picture. The son's bringing nothing with him. All the wealth that his father has given him is gone. But he's like, maybe I can rely on the mercy of my father. So he goes home. That's a beautiful picture of repentance. That's what all of us are called to. We have nothing to offer God. Everything we have is a gift from God. And so when we come to him, it's pleading and begging for his mercy. And then I love this. Because I want us to, so, so right here, the audience is like, Ooh, I wonder what's going to happen with this father. I'm sure some are thinking, you know what? He's going to come home. I'm kicking him back out. Serves you right shouldn't have left in the first place. It's what you get. That's what some of the audience are thinking. Right, and so I I tried to to break it down so some of our guys uh, on the, the foosball team would understand. Let's say we have a high school coach. Let's say his name is Coach Bevels, right? So Coach Bevels has this rule that if you're late to practice for one minute, it's one lap around the track, right? And that is a rule in place. For every minute, one lap around the track. So if you're four minutes late, guess how long you got to run? A mile. If you miss the whole practice, it's 30 miles. you got to run a marathon in a couple days if you want to play by Friday. That's the rules. So let's say, Mike, I'll use you as an example. This is not true of Mike, by the way. He doesn't play for Coach Bevels. Let's say you slept in on Monday when you have practice, right? you got practice at 3.30 to 6.30. You sleep in, and you know what? You wake up, and you're like, man, I'm tired. I'm already a few minutes late. You know what? I'm just going to take the day off. I'm going to catch a cool sports center, watch Spider-Man. I'll catch up tomorrow. I'll make it up. Not a big deal. Well, tomorrow comes, and some of our guys um, love to eat Gold Star before practice, which is never a good idea. Well, let's say Mike wakes up, and he says, you know what? Today, I'm, I'm craving some cheese conies. Or Skyline, he's craving some cheese conies. He gets the case, he eats 12 of them. And he's like, man, I can't make it through practice. I will never make, you know what, I'll just go Wednesday, it's two days before the game, I'll be all right. So on Wednesday, he comes, sees Coach Bevels with his whistle, comes jogging down the stairs, running to Coach Bevels, and he goes to give him a hug. How do you think Coach Bevels will respond? You think he's going to give you a hug? Hey, man, welcome back. He's going to point to the track. He's going to be like, that's 60 laps. Good luck. Right? So we got to be careful. When we're asking people to come to God, we want to make sure we're clear on how gracious God is. Because that's a scary thing. Have You ever messed up? You ever messed up with someone that's not gracious? That's a scary thing. And this father has every right not to be gracious to his son. But check out the grace he shows. Because it's a picture of of how God treats his children. Now, if you grasp this, this will blow you away. This will transform your life. Because when you see the grace God extends to us, it leads us to be gracious to others. This this right here, this picture, I want to get into my heart and into my head. Because when I mess up, and I do mess up, I want to remember I've got to run to the Father who is just, and yet he's gracious, and he's merciful. And so check out this picture, verse 20. Son rose, came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. That's the first thing the father does. I love this. I have this in my mind. He's sitting on the front porch, and it's a long dirt road, uh, and he's looking, and maybe he's sitting on this rocking chair, and every morning he's like, I wonder if today's the day my son's going to come back. And so he looks off into the distance where the sky meets the road, and he's hopeful, and today is that day he sees him because he's looking for him. Sees him while he's still a long way off. Then it says that his father saw him and felt compassion. He's not like, huh, I guess he blew it. No, this this emotion right here is this gut reaction of, man, I want to show love in action. That's what compassion means. Right, when you hear the good Samaritan, the one who moved to help the dude that got beat up was the guy who had compassion. This is the emotion that God the Father has towards his children returning home. He's saying, come on. It's been way too long. Come on in. Compassion. Number two, he ran. Old dudes don't run. Old guys do not run. This is a dignified dude. And when he sees him, has compassion, zoom, takes off. That's a beautiful picture. Of how God comes to his lost sons and his lost daughters. Embraced him and kissed him. I, I can imagine just this huge, hug, kind of like a, when a soldier gets um, back home. Um, this is the, the picture that I have in mind. Uh, the, God the Father embracing his child. Verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. True statements. But father's not having any of that. But the father said to his servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. My man doesn't have good clothes. They're all dirty. He's been hanging out with pigs. He stinks. He's like, get the best robe. Then he says, put a ring on his hand. He's in our family. Get shoes on his feet. Right? You see how impoverished sin has left him. And he's like, hey, go get the air Jordan 11s. Get him on his feet. We're taking care of this guy. This is my son. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate." I love this. He's like, fire up the grill. We got filet mignon. Let's get it on. My son was lost and now he's found. He was dead and now he's alive. It is time to party. He says, celebrate for this was my son. He was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. Now, this is where the last two stories ended, right? You had a lost sheep. You find it. You celebrate. You had a lost coin. You find it. You celebrate. You have a lost son. You find him and you celebrate. But it's not the end of the story. And it leads to what is emphasized in this account. Remember, who is Jesus talking to? Tax collectors and and, uh, Pharisees. Tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to God. Pharisees and scribes are out there grumbling. We're about to be introduced to the Pharisees. Verse 25 says, Now this older brother was in the field, and as he came, he drew near the house and heard music and dancing. Question. Who saw the younger brother a long way off? the father. But there's somebody out in the field that could care less who's walking back. He's not looking for him. This older brother had the responsibility of going after the younger brother but he's like, eh, serves him right. He's hoping he doesn't show back up. And we see it by what happens next. And he called one of the servants and asked, what do these things mean? And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. Why would an older brother be angry here? Could be he's worried about his stuff. He already split it up. Now he's back. He's going to take more of my stuff. Could be he's angry because you're throwing a party for a guy that deserves nothing but judgment. You see the father, you see grace triumphing over sin. But for the brother, his wrongdoing of the younger brother should triumph over grace. He doesn't deserve a party. Keep reading. His father goes out and he entreated and him and begs the older brother to come in. Do you, do you see the compassion and grace of the father? Man, I feel bad. He has two sons. Both are lost. One comes home and then you see how far the older brother still is from the father. Verse 29, but he answered his father, Look these many years I have served you. Never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat. I might celebrate with my friends. Man. But when this son of yours, won't even call him his brother... When he comes, who has devoured your property with prostitution, killed the fat and calf for him, and he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And then the story ends. Why does it end there? Because as of right now, the Pharisees and scribes were still outside the celebration. They weren't coming to God through Christ. They were out here saying, why does he welcome him in? Look, I know that guy, he stole money from me. Why is he coming to Christ? Right? Standing in it, grumbling. And so here you see the older brother's left outside the party, but the invitation is still come in. And all of this points to, man, we have an older brother that we need that this guy did not have. And our older brother is Christ. When we were lost, he came to us. And you've got to remember, at Christmas, we don't celebrate the the birth of Christ like he just came on the scene. Like for me, November 14, 1982, that's when I arrived. Right before that, I wasn't alive. Jesus is eternally with the Father in heaven enjoying his fellowship. He's not lonely. He's not having a bad day because he's in heaven enjoying the presence of the Father and the Spirit. They're getting down. Everything's good. But he lays that aside, comes to earth. Why? Because he's seeking to save that which is lost. You talk about costly finding, hide and go seek. That's what Jesus does here. Say, I'm coming to get you. What does it take? Oh, someone needs to pay for your sin. What does that take? Oh, death? I'll go to the cross. I'll be buried. I'll rise from the grave. Then you can come home to the Father, and nothing but grace awaits you because I paid for your sin. That's the beautiful picture of the prodigal son. Should have had an older brother go and save him, he doesn't. We do. And his name is Jesus. And so I want us to end on just a couple of things. Number one, are you running from God today? Are you running from God today? Might be uh, something that's getting your heart's affection that shouldn't be. It might be a bad thing that you need to turn from. It might be a good thing that you're putting too much emphasis on. And the Father's invitation is to come home. Do you know that the Father is gracious? And this is for those who have come home and maybe dabbled in sin. It might be for those that are running from God. This is a very important picture because when you see that God is merciful and gracious, you are quick to go to Him and not try to hide from Him. And then number three, who are you searching for? So you've been found, and this is is my testimony. When I was seven, I had a lot of people searching for me. I had a mom that would constantly tell me about Jesus. I had grandparents who constantly told me about Jesus and prayed for me. Said, "Hey ben, you, you know that you're not getting to heaven." My like, grandma, I just took two cookies. Yeah, that's wrong. I told you none, and she laid out clear. Hey, I missed it, but she said, "You know what? You can be forgiven because of Jesus." I'm like, "Oh, I get it. Yes, just died for my sin." But you know what? She's searching. And she's not stopping until she's fine. And then I had a pastor and I had a church that was relentless in searching for me. And then at seven years old, I said, You know what? I am messed up. I am a sinner. I'm going to trust Jesus and what he did on the cross to save me. And I experienced nothing but grace. And that's a lifelong journey. You guys know people. Might be a family member, might be a workplace, might be your neighborhood. Listen, none of us are in the places we are at by accident. So this is how I view Holmes High School. I'm searching for around 850 people that need to come home to God. I coach because I'm searching. Now I want to be a good coach, I want to give them the right techniques, and I want to make sure they're doing the best they can, but my goal is not a state championship primarily. My primary goal is that 37 football players are prayed for and sought after Because God is gracious and will welcome them home. And I hope that's our view with where you live, with your neighborhood, with who you work with. The person that gets on your nerves the most is probably the person God is drawing to himself. So go find him. Go find her. And then I want this church to be a place made up of people who are searchers and know the grace of God personally, but then extend it practically. I want us to be a gracious church. I don't want us to get mad when something doesn't go right, when someone comes in and doesn't do what we think they should do. I want us to welcome in outsiders. I want us to celebrate when the lost are found and sons and daughters come home to God. A church that is gracious like the Father will gather a crowd like the Son. Tax collectors and sinners were flocking to Jesus. And and I'll leave you with this story. And I don't think he'll mind. He didn't make it today. He's he's with his dad, um, Jeffrey Johnson. He was a guy that that we've been praying for, and we've shared the gospel with multiple times. And then Mike and I were, see, the cool part about a truck is you're stuck in the front, right? And so it's me, and it's Jeffrey, and then it's Mike. If Mike wants the middle, he takes the middle. If he wants the window seat, he takes the window seat, right? So Jeffrey's stuck in there, and he's a captive audience. It's after practice, and, and Mike actually brought it up and says, Jeffrey, did you make a decision to follow Jesus yet? I'm like, that's a great question. I should have asked that. I look over to Jeffrey and he's just, he's like, not yet, not yet. I was like, Jeffrey, what you, what you waiting on? You know that Jesus can save you. You can be forgiven, that that God is gracious and he'll welcome you in. And he's just waiting. And I said, you know, you can pray. You know, he hears you when you call on him to be saved. He'll hear you. So we we let him out and he said, he'll think about it. And he might do it that night. So I think this was Tuesday. He comes to practice, for practice and then he's stuck in the truck again. And on our way back home, I asked him, I was like, hey, so so did you make a decision last night?" He's like, I did. I did. I'm going to follow Jesus. I asked him to forgive me of my sin. I thought, that is awesome. And then Mike goes, well, what took you so long? (laughs) Right? I love that. I love that. And then we're going to get this thing right. I know it's an eyesore right now. We're going to put a little wrap on it. But this, when we baptize, it's a celebration of what God's already doing. And, And what I want to encourage you is this is a time of celebration. There are people who are far from God that God's drawing near and we're going out and we're searching and we're begging with people to get in here. Not in this building, but in the kingdom and you come through Christ. Christ has done the work. Stop running to sin. It's just going to drain you of all of your life. Turn to Christ. Be forgiven. Be saved. And right now I believe the spirit's moving and he's convicting you and me of things in our life that we need to turn from. And I think he's moving and showing, hey, this is who God is. This is a gracious father, unconditional love. And this is your older brother. And he goes to the cross for you. And when you know it and you believe it, your life is changed forever. And you see that change in how you treat those who are far from God. We're going to go after him. That will be the legacy of Redemption Church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace. And so, Father, I pray that today we see it with fresh eyes. And so, Father, I pray for those in the room that don't know you, that today will be the day they commit their lives to you, that they'll turn from sin and trust in Jesus for salvation. And then I pray for those who have made that decision. I pray that today you will lay a specific person or a specific family on their hearts, and show them how to go after them. And not stop until they are found. Father, thank you for your grace. May it transform our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.